What's up, guys? This is Dave Duenas, and you're listening to Leave It In The Ring Network. Be sure you go to our YouTube, subscribe, hit the like button, and hit that notification bell so you're alerted when we bring up new content on the YouTube channel. Right now, you're about to tune in to Fish Sonatos with Evan Rakowski. Enjoy. Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, Fight Fan. It is Wednesday, July 15th, and this is the Fisgianados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. All right, deep dive this week will be a trip down memory lane. Uh, I will go over a fun pay-per-view marketing experience and just kind of walk you guys. I, re- I realize I haven't really done that, like walked you through an actual marketing experience that I had on a specific show. I think next episode, what I'd like to do is talk about, go, kind of go back into this COVID boxing world and talk about maybe the, I think it's going to be the big issues that promoters face. I haven't really gone too deep into what promoters face coming out of this pandemic. And I also think in the next two weeks, we're going to get a lot of information about this, a lot more public information about this, at least uh, from the standpoint of we've seen what top rank has been doing. And now that's going to have to get applied to a lot more fights coming up. I'm assuming there'll be a lot of fights announced between now and then, and and we'll start to see what's happening on other networks as other networks prepare to come back and, and promoters and content providers, in the case of PBC, uh, really have to sort of map out what they're going to be doing this fall. So that'll be the plan going forward this episode and the next two. Let's start with the review section, though. Going back to Thursday, July 2nd in Las Vegas and on ESPN, we had Jose Pedraza winning by wide unanimous decision versus Mikel Pierre, junior welterweight. Uh, and look, for these ESPN cards, I'm not going to go through the results of the undercards unless they were really significant. Um, as cool of a story as like Cassius Clay Collard has been, um, you know, and, and some of the other stuff that, that's come out of this. I'm just going to list the main events and, and the viewership numbers and then kind of sum it up at the end. This show does an average of 350,000 viewers. It was the number 60 rated cable show of the day. Then Tuesday, July 7th, also in Las Vegas on ESPN, we have Jose Zapata beating Kendo Castaneda. And then on the undercard, Luis Lopez getting a really close split decision versus Andy Vences in a good fight. 
This showed us 318,000 viewers on average. It was the number 69 rated cable show of the day. Thursday, July 9th, Carlos Takam beats Jerry Foster. This showed us 299,000 viewers. It was the number 82 rated cable show of the day. And then Tuesday, July 14th, last night, Michaela Meyer defeats Helen Joseph by wide unanimous decision. It does 307,000 viewers on average was the number 52 rated cable show. They actually had a good peak um, on a relatively good peak, let's say. So just to, re to have a reaction and sum up all these ratings, we're kind of seeing where these shows are going. Like they're in the 300 to 350,000 viewership range on average for the most part. Um, I think... All these shows, and remember, these shows, I've, I've talked about this before, they're going, like, they, they've reduced it from four hours to three hours, and we're watching a lot of, let's just be honest, like, club-level fights, um, you know, main events notwithstanding in a lot of these. Um, as I've mentioned previously, I think all these shows were the top shows on ESPN that day. Uh, last episode, maybe, I think like maybe half of them were. The episode before that, all of them were. Um, we've not seen those Saturday shows, which actually some of them did decent in the ratings, but uh, just not competitive fights at all. Um, and then if you compare it, there's not really a great comparison to other sports. I will be curious. There's a UFC show on tonight from the whole Fight Island thing that's on regular ESPN that I'm sure will do well. Uh, but the only sports event that's beating them right now is Premier League Soccer, which is averaging like, and this is what I'm saying, same day event. Those games are averaging somewhere in the three hundred fifty to 400,000 viewership range for their midweek games. Uh, to their credit, though, they're in a much tougher time slot in terms of getting viewership. They're not in prime time. Um, but we're also... The English Premier League is probably the top soccer league in the world. We're definitely not watching the top boxing in the world right now. Uh, there's some debate over whether this is good or bad for boxing, and I don't really think it's either. I mean, right now, like, I just think most people in the U.S. and the U.S. market, they're just not interested in watching young fighters build their records in club-level fights. And I actually think, like, you know, in MMA, the culture is a lot different, and Club level, what well, in boxing we'd consider to be club level fights in MMA, they can be really exciting. They can be evenly matched, and if you win a couple in a row, uh, they will put you on the fast track, and, and you'll get a big fight. So I think it's just a different, it's a different model, it's a different way of looking at it. And people aren't as interested in watching these fights. I don't blame them. Like they're not um, watching prospects build their records can be exciting for certain prospects and, and once they hit a certain level, but below that kind of 10 and no level, it's really tough. It's just really, really tough. Uh, you know, again, top rank is doing ESPN a favor, I think by doing this, like they they really are, they're taking something that I'm sure they would prefer not to put on national television, turning it into like a three hour affair um, and not getting the viewership they want because they're showing like four and prospects fight or like a preschool teacher fighting like a dental assist assistant or whatever it was the other night. I'm, I'm messing up the, that part, but it's, 
like, you know, it's it, like these aren't some of these fights just aren't professional. I mean, they are professional boxers, but they're not like these guys aren't really t- like true professional athletes fighting. It's just not at that level. So the other thing that I think, and I'll probably talk about this a lot more next episode, but I think it's really significant. Uh, like, let's just be honest here. Like, almost every single one of these cards has been affected in some way, shape, or form by COVID. There have been a lot of main events and co-main events moved either by COVID or by injuries to fighters that you can actually probably put, even if COVID wasn't part of the injury, you can actually put part of the blame on that because of the terrible training conditions that fighters are going through, which they're much more likely to get injured during. You know, and I think... I think we will probably look back on this and just think it's like this really weird time in the sport. I mean, obviously, it's a really weird time in our lives. Um, you know, I think things will improve in terms of viewership. And I also think that if you aren't alarmed by the amount of fights just that have been affected by COVID, you know, like you should be and, and you should be weirded out in terms of what comes next. I mean, Top Rank and ESPN have done this first. They've dealt with a lot of curveballs, but every single other promoter, content provider network is going to deal with this. And there's going to be lingering issues. And we're going to see a lot, a lot of what we're seeing in Top Rank, we're going to see elsewhere. And it's going to affect fights that we're going to have, you know, we're going to want to see. Basically, I mean that's just there's no there's no way to get around it. Uh, but again, I think I'm going to go further into this next episode, especially as some of these higher level fights start to get made. So a few other news and notes before we move into the deep dive. There's two things I wanted to touch on. Just I guess one of them real quick, just the Jarrell Miller situation. I mean I could have talked about this last episode. I, you know, and honestly, I could do a whole episode on PEDs and boxing because it, it's actually, I think it's a pretty, I mean, in some ways it, it is, in some ways it's actually a really simple issue, but I think in a lot of other ways, it's a very complex issue uh, that when you peel away the layers, there, there's a lot of layers there and there's a lot to get into. Um, but this one, we're only going to touch the surface on it. I mean, I think my view on this is that Miller has now gotten to the point where even promoters who don't take a moral stand on PEDs now, like even they cannot put any faith in this guy because he's cost them big money several times. And, uh, you know, that just goes to show you that like, if you get caught doing this, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people say, Oh, you'll never pay a price. Like he didn't pay a price. I mean, he did pay a price. Like at this point, Drum Miller's probably lost seven million dollars in fight purses, and fool me once, you know, fool me, you know, whatever the fool, me, <laughs> fool me once, that's on you. Fool me twice, that's on me. I mean, I think he's now done it twice, and I think you're just an idiot if you're a promoter who puts him in a big fight and you take a chance that he will come back in and, and fail another drug test. And like I said, I mean, these are essentially IQ tests. Like you, there are plenty of, you know, if you're paying attention, like passing a drug test, like passing a PED test, if you're a boxer, like should be something that you can do if you really want to. And, and 
he cares so little about it that he can't even figure out how to pass the drug test after having been caught. Um, so, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't see, even if you don't take a moral stance on PED usage in the sport, you do have to take a moral stance or you do have to take a stance, uh, maybe not a moral stance on the intelligence of a fighter that you're putting a lot of <laughs> faith and money in that he's actually going to make sure your event happens. And I think after this, like you just won't see that again. Uh, another quick hitter. Last week, we saw top-ranked PPC and Golden Boy all took advantage of PPP loans. Uh, and there was some PPP loan shaming happening on Twitter and in some articles written, which I have a major problem with. Uh, according to an article in the Sports Business Journal, the sports industry in general, there were 36,000 jobs that were saved by PPP loans. And, you know, even if you sit here and say, oh, look, like this, you know, ex-celebrity or rich person, you know, in boxing's case, it would be Bob Arum or Floyd Mayweather. I think May I think Mayweather Promotions took a, a PPP loan. Um, you know, Al Heyman, Oscar De La Hoya, like, um, like in you can criticize a rich person for taking a PPP loan, um, but I don't agree with that. I think the rich person owned a company where if they didn't get the PPP loan, they would have to furlough or lay off employees because most, even if you're worth several million dollars or like over $10 million, like I don't think, you know, we're not talking a lot of these companies, we're not talking like three employees. Like a lot of these companies are 15 or 20 or 30 employees and, I, you know, even if you're worth several million dollars, I don't think you should be expected to burn through your life savings in order to keep all these people employed on a business that you're not even sure, you know, if and when you're going to come back. I mean, like these, you know, all these promoters have a legit amount of employees, many of whom are, are paid like pretty well. So Al Heyman and Floyd Mayweather and Bob Arum and Oscar, and, you know, I don't, I don't think Eddie Hearn took them, but like they all should have taken these loans. I mean, they literally run the definition of what kind of business should have taken a PVP loan. Uh, all of them, to my knowledge, didn't have any layoffs. I, I <laughs> you know, classic, classic fashion. Talked with Top Rank, talked with PBC, um, <laughs> did not get anyone to talk to at Golden Boy. Um, but Top Rank and PBC, no layoffs, no plans for layoffs. Uh, Top Rank was the only one that conducted business during the pandemic. And all these companies are going to face revenue shortages due to gate being gone and added expenses. And look, they're essentially trailblazers moving forward in the world of sports, along with UFC and, and NASCAR and maybe to a certain extent golf. Like, I think bravo for taking these loans and keeping all their people employed and not having layoffs. So good for them. Uh, and if you shamed them on Twitter, you should re-examine uh, what you're doing, basically. So for the deep dive, let's just move, you know, enough of that, let's move on to the deep dive. For the deep dive this week, like I said, I wanted to go down memory lane and talk about a pay-per-view that I look back at as one of the more significantly overperforming pay-per-views that I've ever worked on. Um, it might surprise you too, especially like, you know, as I personally look back on it, like I don't think of it as an important fight or a good fight 
or something that most boxing fans, <laughs> quite frankly, would even like hardcore fans would even point to and say they felt good about buying. Um, and the fight is Canelo versus Chavez Jr. Like this fight is actually one of those boxing pay-per-views that will be looked at almost laughingly by the hardcore fan base, but probably in terms of Canelo becoming a legit star might be one of the more important fights that, that he took. I mean, you know, in terms of him carrying a pay-per-view on his own to the tune of a million plus buys, I mean, like in the in the long run, it set things up for the Triple G fight, and then with Canelo, it ended up being one of the more you know important business decisions that that he will have made when it's all said and done. And, and you know, let's let's break it down. Let's look at why. I mean, I think I think when you look at this pay per view, the hardcore fan base that uh, right they they think of the hardcore fans think about this totally in the time reference of where we are now where Canelo is actually legitimately looked at as either the best pound for pound fighter in the sport or at least in the top five. And even if you're like the most hipster of fans, you're still probably putting him in your top 10 of, of pound for pound fighters. Meanwhile, like Chavez Jr. is a complete joke, you know, who quits as a fighter. He changes his hair color. He's just sort of this caricature of what a professional boxer should look like, like almost the, you know, complete opposite of his father. Like he is the walking, talking, breathing case of what a silver spoon boxer is. And it just drives a lot of people crazy that he still gets seven figure paydays when he clearly doesn't take the sport seriously. Uh, you know, but I think if you go back and look at this fight through the lens of 2017, when it actually happened, and even more importantly, when you look at it starting in 2012, where there were much different opinions there about, you know, in, in professional boxing circles about both fighters, I think that context will actually, you, you'll start to see why this was so important, especially for Canelo. So September 15th of 2012 was a pretty interesting day in this era of boxing because Canelo and Chavez Jr. both fought on the same day in the same city. Uh, and they originally both spoke, uh, both supposed to fight on pay-per-view. Canelo ended up fighting Cito Lopez on regular showtime rather than pay-per-view, and Chavez Jr. ended up fighting Sergio Martinez on pay-per-view. And I think, uh, and, and this is prime era of the boxing Cold War, so to speak. Canelo is fighting with Golden Boy, uh, Chavez Jr. fighting with Top Rank. You know, I, I think it's worth remembering that up until this point, Canelo had never headlined a pay-per-view, but had fought on a few of Mayweather's pay-per-views in like a prime undercard slot. Um, and also at this point, many boxing insiders viewed him in like as a suspect fighter in terms of talent. Or maybe if they thought he was talented, they also thought he had a lot of weaknesses in his game that he would ha- and, he, and he, he would have to do a lot of work to improve those weaknesses. Um, you know, you, you remember, I think he got buzzed by Cotto's brother. Like, you know, a lot of people thought if you were talking to him that he would never be able to reach the top level and win titles. Um, but everybody thought he had star potential, which I guess are two different things very specifically. In fact, I don't guess I know. 
So this was right when Golden Boy was shifting most of its fighters over to Showtime from HBO. Um, and, you know, there were questions as to whether Cano would become a star. Also, not just period, but also because he was moving to Showtime, which at the time was the clear number two to HBO. So it's like, can Showtime build Canelo as a pay-per-view star attraction? Um, every fight up until this point for Canelo had been on HBO. So this was his sort of coming out party, and it was like the first time where there would be a major Mexican boxing holiday up for grabs for this younger generation, which is why neither fighter wanted to budge and move off the date. And I think, you know, the funny thing here is, I'm actually, I'm listing all these questions that I have for Canelo. Like at the time, like many boxing insiders would have asked similar questions about Chavez Jr. And maybe it's not that funny. I mean, I think it's, you know, these, these are all like people weren't sure, you know, people with both of these guys were like, Oh, they are stars, but we're not sure if they're good, you know, or great. Maybe they're good, but we're not sure if they're great. But I think like, when it comes to Chavez Jr., he had been brought along really meticulously by by Top Rank. I mean, uh, you know, by the time the Sergio fight was happening, I think there was actually a really interesting debate as to, like, which fighter, Chavez Jr. or Canelo, was more talented and which fighter would end up with a better career. I mean, if you look at Canelo's resume up to this point, it's like a totally washed Shane Mosley and Alfonso Gomez and then like Ricky Hatton's brother and Miguel Cotto's brother and then like Carlos Baldemir, who was probably washed at the time too. Chavez Jr. actually had like a, a more impressive resume. I mean, not by a whole lot, but he'd beaten Sebastian Zvik for the title. He beat Peter Manfredo. He beat Marco Antonio Rubio and then Andy Lee, who is, you know, probably the most impressive name on either person's resume, you know, and he had won, Chavez Jr. won those four fights, like, in about the span of a year. So he'd been fighting regularly. He had the WBC title, and he kind of had this crazy superpower where he could be in good shape and then lose all this water weight and rehydrate to the point where he had a pretty impressive size advantage on all his opponents. And it's not so much as that specifically was a superpower, but I think for him, it played into his style of fighting really, really well. It allowed him to use a very specific style where his chances for success are much more likely. Um, And he was also getting huge ratings on HBO. And I mean, these are numbers that, I mean, even today on HBO, which is in like a third of the amount of homes that Fox or ESPN is like, these are, these are numbers that would be a mediocre day for Fox or like a really good day for ESPN. And just in terms of total viewership, not ratings, but in terms of total viewership. And I don't want to spend too much time looking at this back in 2012, but I do it because I think it's 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 worth noting that most people in the boxing world had Canelo and Chavez Jr. on like pretty similar levels at this moment in time. And coming out of that date, 
you might have even guessed that Chavez Jr. would have been the bigger star moving forward rather than Canelo because Chavez Jr., yes, he got dominated for 10 rounds, but then he kind of like ended Sergio's career or he started the decline of Sergio's career with, with that knockdown. Um, and, you know, for this fight, I mean, look, I wasn't there. I was actually at a friend's wedding that weekend. I was not at the actual fight. But the people who went, they were like, yeah, that was one of the most surreal moments they've experienced in boxing. And it was one of the most electrifying moments in the arena. You know, whereas Canelo just kind of like won as expected over Lopez, who took the fight on short notice and is way smaller than Canelo. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I bring this up is because this is actually a fairly important moment in the business of boxing, too, because, you know, since no one moved off the date, what actually happened was there are a lot of entities that are sort of like peripherally connected to the sport that actually had to pick a side um, and that ended up having like consequences for years afterwards. I mean, you know, it's not to say that like Top Rank and Golden Boy were ever best of friends, but like Top Rank had a to end up doing their show at the Thomas and Mack Center and the hotel was the win. And Golden Boy used the MGM Grand. And in terms of promoting the fight, like they had, you know, they had to force marketing agencies and PR people and casino groups who had previously had been able to work with both sides. Um, they forced them to pick a side. And then that kind of generally became the de facto thing moving forward for the next few years. In some cases, like in some cases, that was like the thing moving forward for the next decade. Um, and even writers and journalistic outlets had to kind of like tiptoe around the issue of how they handled the coverage. Like um, if you were a specific journalist, uh, you know, who you picked in terms of covering in some cases had a lasting effect on how promoters looked at you in terms of what you were doing it or, or, you know, in the case of if you were ESPN, for instance, like promoters definitely took notice of where your A guy went versus where your guy who may not be your A guy, who was your B guy or B B level journalist went, you know, they took notice of that stuff. And part of the reason why I give this background is that like right now it sounds silly to say this stuff. And even in the five years in between this moment um, or the four and a half years in between this moment. And, you know, obviously like Chavez Jr. took sort of a wild turn where he went from fighting four times in a year previous to the Sergio fight to only fighting five times in the four and a half years in between September of 2012 and May of 2017 against Canelo. I mean, he fought Brian Barrett twice, winning both times, once really controversially. He lost against Andrew Fanfara, quitting on the stool, and then he beat Marcos Reyes and Dominic Rich, which that fight, by the way, wasn't even televised in the United States. Whereas Canelo fought eight times, beating Austin Trout, losing to Floyd Mayweather, and then beating Angulo and Lara on pay-per-view, where he did decent numbers as a young star breaking out on his own and beating Lara, who was sort of the boogeyman at the time. Um, and, and a credit to how much more skilled he was getting in the ring, although a lot of, a lot of people had Laurel winning. Uh, then he beat James Kirkland on regular HBO, getting the best TV numbers HBO got all decade, and getting a viewership number that has only been beaten like two or three times by Fox or ESPN, like all decade. Um, 
or even other networks. I guess you could count CBS in there too. CBS, CBS beat it. Um, and then he beats Miguel Cotto, Amir Khan, and Liam Smith all on pay-per-view. But I think here's this is a good time to pause and look at the building of a pay-per-view star because while Canelo is the number one star in boxing right now, he wasn't during this run, and it wasn't even close. I mean, Mayweather was way more popular and way bigger of, an, of a star, and to an extent, Pacquiao too. And you might say, no, no, no. But remember, like, when Canelo fought Cotto, Cotto was actually the A-side uh, versus Canelo. And, you know, that fight topped 900,000 buys, yeah, but Cotto was the A-side. Cotto had the title. Khan, it was way less. It was like 650,000 range. And then, you know, and Khan was a name. Liam Smith, not a name at all, but that was less than 400,000. Remember, if you look at it in order, you're going... 900,000, 653 something. Like, you can say that one didn't even get close to 400K, but it definitely had a three in front of it. Let's just put it that way. And that's a precipitous decline over three fights. I mean, even though, like, when you look at it through the greater context, it's all explainable, and you shouldn't just say you're having these crazy declining pay per views because I don't, everyone knows who Miguel Cotto is. Most boxing fans at that point knew who Amir Khan was. I mean, almost no one knew who Liam Smith was. So I don't say this to put doubt in Canelo's stardom. Um, but like, you know, I mean, with with Liam Smith, like we weren't even selling the matchup. We were selling Canelo fighting in Cowboy Stadium. Uh, but the point is, Canelo as a pure A-side... It wasn't. It was clear that he was a pay-per-view star, but it wasn't clear that he was going to break out and be this guy who could regularly do a million buys on pay-per-view. There was some questioning in terms of what his star power truly was as this Chavez Jr. fight arrived. And I'm not talking about the competitiveness of the fight here. I'm talking about Canelo's star power. Um, You know, I actually remember talking with a prominent HBO employee about this one right after they got out of a meeting with Golden Boy where they had the unfortunate task to explain to Golden Boy that through some due diligence and from research coming from cable companies and other places, like the thinking was we'd be lucky to get to 650,000 buys and there were scenarios like there were pathways where we wouldn't even hit 600,000 buys. And given Chavez Jr.'s inconsistencies over the years, and given that Canelo had never truly hit that elite level of a buy rate as an A-side, there were a lot of questions coming into this. Um, you know, and, and I think you know, there, there was some internal debate at HBO as to how to market a fight that most core fans would view as completely non-competitive. And look, to their credit, Golden Boy just marched ahead, assuming that this would do way more buys than we were telling them. Because only a few years ago, they were probably assuming that one day Canelo and Chavez Jr. would fight each other, and it would literally break pay-per-view records. I mean, that clearly wasn't happening now. But the question was, like, how do we tap into the market that was there a few years earlier for this fight? And just a reminder here, in the world where this is happening, like this fight is taking place 
in May of, seven, of 2017. So in June of 2017, Manny Pacquiao would fight Jeff Horn on ESPN in the first show that Top Rank would do on their deal with ESPN. With that fight, it averaged over 3 million viewers. It peaked at over 4 million viewers. And I don't say that to say that Pacquiao was a bigger star. I'm just saying, like, the boxing world was changing at this point. ESPN was back in the game. PBC was doing a time buy, you know, on several different networks. Um, this was the first time in a while where HBO didn't have the clear number one star in the sport, who was Mayweather. Um, Pacquiao, it was questionable as to where he was. He obviously was a clear number two when fighting Mayweather in terms of commercial draw. Uh, the biggest promoter was Top Rank, who had just left HBO. And the biggest content provider was PBC. I mean, they're not technically a promoter, but let's just put it this way. They weren't coming back to HBO. So for HBO, establishing Canelo as a star was critical because Golden Boy, you know, basically all HBO had was Golden Boy, who was Canelo and a couple other fighters, like some of whom would struggle to be in main events for HBO, let's be honest. And then some of the smaller promoters, like the main events, the Wafflers, like that kind of stuff. Like that was the hand that was dealt. And look, trust me, I mean, no one's happy about that. That's a whole other podcast, to be perfectly honest. But like going back to the Canelo Chavez Jr. fight, in terms of marketing a pay-per-view fight, like this critical question comes up, like how do you effectively market a fight that you know isn't going to be competitive? How do you speak to core fans and get them excited about something that core fans know won't be exciting? And I mean, we had to do this for this fight. <laughs> Showtime had to do it for Mayweather McGregor, <laughs> which is a whole other thing. But, you know, particularly for this fight, Chavez Jr. has this name that can at least tap into this Mexican-American casual fan base where there's some commercial value, but you, you really got to be smart about how you tap into it. I mean, we knew going in there was a really high variance of pay-per-view buy levels for this fight. I mean, if people believe that Chavez Jr. was up for it and that this wasn't going to be him smoking weed, waking up in the afternoon, not training hard in pink underwear while he's eating Fruit Loops, like, you know, if, if they thought that he was going to take it seriously... They might buy in. Uh, so we made a couple, I would say, pretty important decisions on the marketing and programming side. We were not going to do a 24-7 for this fight. Rather, we did a show on the fighting tradition of Mexican fighters. Uh, you can make an argument that some of that was based around Canelo not wanting a ton of cameras coming in, but... Uh, Canelo let all of the cameras in for the, you know, what we would call the Barker show. Um, so <laughs> that was interesting, to say the least. Uh, but also, I think more importantly, it was pretty clear no one wanted an embarrassing situation. And 24-7, if they were going to make that show, they were going to do it with integrity. So Chavez Jr. had the potential to bring... Lots of embarrassment to the fight. I mean, if people were watching 24-7 and watching him train and, and, and he wasn't training seriously, uh, 
they just weren't going to buy the fight. I think it's that simple. You know, we also, in terms of doing a media plan, we were going to focus a lot on the cable systems in, in, in a paid media plan. And without getting into the nuances of how that works, let's just say like ESPN and Fox don't do that part particularly well because I think it's a lot to do with they just have different relationships with the cable companies than HBO and Showtime do. I mean, HBO and Showtime depend on the cable companies uh, for a significant chunk of their overall revenue as companies just because most people who subscribe to HBO and Showtime subscribe through their cable company. And that was even more true back in 2017 than it is today. It's still true today. The, the most of the subscriptions uh, are through cable companies today. And it's not even most, it's like not even close. It's, it's, it's still multiples. Um, now that is shrinking as we go, but it's still multiples. You know, also more importantly, probably most importantly, we were like going to quadruple down on the Mexican-American fan base. And anyone listening to this is like, oh, sure, that makes you a genius. Like two Mexican fighters and you're going to quadruple down on the Mexican-American fan base. And I mean, I would say that we were always going to target that fan base. Like, trust me, like we're not complete idiots. Um, that fan base gets targeted for every fight no matter what. But we did it to the point where we, in terms of paid media, we did a lot of things we wouldn't normally do. And a lot of it was much more geared towards the casual Mexican-American fan base than it was the hardcore boxing fans who were, you know, Mexican-American, which was risky because, I mean, I think there's a chance that many of the core fans, if they were being asked about this fight, they would just say, like, no, don't buy it to, to a casual friend because it, it just wasn't going to be competitive. So we needed this fight to actually catch fire and be a fun thing to go do. And I mean, just to be clear here for people who don't understand marketing that well, there are several different ways to market something. One is paid media. And this is part of my job at HBO, like doing paid media plans. These are everything from TV ads you see to newspaper ads, billboards, radio ads, digital ads that you see online, social media ads. Then there is this component is the it's the content you put out to create you create this content to put out in these ads and I worked on that as well as as HBO that's like creating all these assets artwork there's video content that you know I specifically worked on cutting down to thirty second ads I'm not going to bore you guys with with the specifics but you you essentially take at HBO we would take something that would be like 90 seconds meant for what we would call on-air marketing, which is on the HBO platform. As if you're watching HBO and you see it in between shows, you might see a couple of uh, promos for upcoming programming. But you take that and you turn it into a 30-second spot that we would call off-channel. Or if we were buying ads on TV somewhere else, you know, you take that working longer spot and you cut it down. So there, there's a lot that goes into that. Then there's what I would call PR or earned media, which is how HBO interacts with the press in terms of what journalists they get to write what before the fight or they work with journalists to give them information to uh, write articles. And then there's um, 
owned media, which is social media channels, website, H anything that HBO owns and runs by itself that people would pay attention to. Um, there's other stuff too. There's partnerships, but let's just focus on the stuff I mentioned for right now, owned, earned, and paid media. Um, in the world of pay-per-view, that stuff's the most important. And I think like one of the weird quirks of pay-per-view is that as opposed to fights that were on the network, the promoter rather than HBO actually has a lot more say in how the money was spent promoting the fight and how the creative assets were made. You know, if you want any evidence of this, there is a long list of 30 second ad spots for pay-per-view fights that are essentially like high end versions of monster truck ads. Um, <laughs> and which as a creative exec who was trained by some of the best in the business at HBO, I would call some of these like literally cringeworthy ads because the promoter or talent wanted something done in a certain way. And it caused a lot of friction at HBO because sometimes they were so not typically what HBO would use to market a fight that we just literally wouldn't put them on our airwaves at HBO. We'd have to create a different ad for essentially the same thing that we would tell in our voice if we were going to use it on our airwaves. Um, and this led to like this sort of almost crazy turn because one of the ways that Golden Boy wanted to get the casual Mexican-American fan base to turn out was to make like a different type of spot for it. And we kind of sensed that it was taking a weird turn because as certain deadlines were approaching, it was pretty clear that Golden Boy wasn't giving us any info on the creative. They wanted to do it all themselves. They were willing to spend the money on it. And, you know, we didn't have the strength of leadership at the top of HBO Sports to do anything about it. I mean, 10 years before this, there would be like a, a drag them out fight if a promoter wanted to do something like that. And we didn't agree with the direction they were going. Uh, but now that, you know, or 20 in 2017, that just wasn't the case. Uh, promoters had a lot more leverage over, um, the leadership at HBO Sports, and, you know, we weren't going to tell them no, which was frustrating. So we ended up seeing the plans for the creative where Golden Boy wanted to do this ad where it was going to show Canelo and Chavez Jr. starting out in Mexico and breaking through a wall to come into America and fight each other in Las Vegas. And, I mean, obviously the timing of this is a few months after Trump took office and he... He was really pushing the build the wall chance. So there were like serious political overtones to this. And I mean, HBO as a company doesn't shy away from political TV shows, but we would never, especially in marketing, politicize something like this. Like selling a boxing pay-per-view isn't really something that touches politics in that way. Like maybe it can touch a political issue to help you sell a fight. Um, but these were usually issues where you weren't necessarily offending like 45% of the American public. And it's like usually po political issues where people aren't like completely dug in on. Like this was an issue where one side felt very strongly about this and the other side like felt very strongly about 
you know, the opposite. So, you know, and, and I mean, our attitude was we don't want to like in a fight that could clearly go two different ways in terms of, of, or multiple pathways in terms of pay-per-view buys. Like we did not want to offend a significant, you know, potentially significant, uh, small, but significant portion of the pay-per-view buying audience. Let's just put it that way. Um, when we saw the idea on paper, I mean, we were like vehemently opposed to it, but no one at HBO would tell Golden Boy no. And, you know, I think, I think when you're looking at, like, there's a lot of different ways I've kind of just detailed. There's a lot of different things that go into marketing a pay-per-view event. And like, sometimes the actual ad really doesn't matter at all. And sometimes I think it matters a lot. And I mean, usually it's actually the opposite of what you think. I mean, I think usually when the pay-per-view is tougher to sell, those can actually be some of the best ads that we've made. Like a lot more thought goes into house to sell a fight like Kovalev Ward, you know, their first fight. Um, and if you look at that ad, that 30 second spot, our internal team at HBO did that. I thought it was an awesome ad. Um, another one that I worked on uh, was Crawford Postal, where I thought Top Rank, they did that ad internally. It wasn't HBO's team, but I thought it was a really strong sell to the core fan base, you know, in terms of what we had to work with on that one. Um, but neither of those were successful pay-per-views, um, but strong ads. I mean, it's usually the most obvious sells don't have a, you know, you don't need a good 30 second spot. It's more just the content matters less than the day, the date and the time basically in terms of, in terms of running an ad for it. So, um, despite all the bad omens on the creative side, the saving grace for this one was actually that like the running through the wall idea was executed almost like so weirdly that you couldn't really understand that there were political elements to it. It just more looked like it was an action movie. Um, and it kind of like you couldn't, because of that, it really didn't offend people. And then I actually think what turned out to be great was to Golden Boy's credit, they actually got Maggie Haberman, uh, the now fa very famous Maggie Hammerman in the, you know in the New York Times to write a New York Times article about the political elements of having a thirty second spot where uh, that was about the fighters running through the wall, and I thought it was a great combination. Like that specifically is like a great example of paid and earned media, and credit to Golden Boy for this. And and Oscar was out there constantly railing on Trump. Uh, and to his credit, he created a lot of buzz in the Mexican-American community for this. And when it came to the other stuff for this pay-per-view, like, we started to feel some momentum with a couple weeks out. Like, Chavez Jr. didn't really fuck anything up. And I think he trained at altitude, I think, which gave him some, like, at least a credible talking point on this. And the way we sold the event in terms of a lot of the other creative besides the spot was you know, in, in the paid media with this is, this is sort of like, this is the Mexican Super Bowl. Like this is a big Cinco de Mayo party, but everyone was invited. It's not just, you know, it's kind of like any Cinco de Mayo party. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a Mexican or Mexican American holiday. 
um, but everyone's invited to celebrate. And that may sound weird to core boxing fans, but I actually think it was a great selling point to the casual fans because it didn't try to build this up as a super competitive fight in any way. It built it up as a fun party with the goal being to decrease expectations amongst hardcore fans and actually encourage them to host a party rather than just be bitter about watching a shitty fight alone or with one other hardcore fan. Um, and on the paid media side, we explored a ton of things that were normally like at the time, kind of like fringe things you would spend money on or stuff that we, you know, wouldn't do almost all of it. Like, like basically all of it was intended to increase awareness among casual, like super casual audiences. And we figured there was no need to go after the core because they were intelligent enough to realize that this wasn't a fight made for them. So if we went after the people who, you know, would watch it with them, it would almost give them permission to watch the fight or host a fight or whatever. And I mean, we did some like, we did some big things on DraftKings that getting, you know, ended up getting us way more exposure in terms of impressions that even like a really big NFL ad would have gotten. Like, and we got it for the fraction of, of a price of the NFL ad. And, and we explored bringing in some podcasts onto Radio Row, um, <laughs> including one that I won't tell a story on, but MMA fans will have, uh, MMA fans would think it would be hilarious if they heard uh, one of the ones we were talking about. Um, we did a big spend. We did a, we spent money on a lot of places uh, where, you know, let, let's call them T, TMZ-like places where uh, you would just sort of see a lot of celebrities talking about how excited they were to watch the fight, like that kind of stuff. And, I mean, this is stuff that, like, three years ago, these would be considered fringe techniques at HBO. Like, you know, not in normal marketing companies or circles or, you know, DTC, like direct-to-consumer companies, um, would not consider these fringe, especially, like, the podcasting and stuff like that. But, like... Three years ago, I can't even tell you how much work it was internally at HBO to explain the benefits of marketing on a podcast to people at HBO or my department, you know, convincing them that marketing on a website like TMZ or other sites like it was a good idea because they would consider that if you were speaking to someone who would mark, who was marketing an HBO series, they would consider that like the term would be downstream um, and, and they wouldn't be interested in uh, using anything like that, basically. So, and actually something like DraftKings was more of a curiosity. Like, the, they were actually interested in that just because they got the results and they're like, wow, that's like really impressive in terms of just total impressions. But, um, you know, and <laughs> by the way, on, on another issue, shocking that HBO Max has had a trouble launching when you have mindsets like all of that stuff uh, from back then. But, you know, look... The other people, like the people working on HBO's social media or owned media, as I referred to it above, like they focus on the same philosophical things that I'm talking about. Um, we were all lockstep together. Like same thing with the HBO sports people who are making the programming that would appear on HBO. Like, like I said, there's there's actually a show that we invented. It's like called Fighting Tradition or something like that that literally just focuses on how many great traditional fighters there are from Mexico to build up this fight not focusing on how competitive the fight would be. Uh, and I think that's really important in today's world because this is one of those things, like the way I lay this out where 
you focus on certain elements of it. And I'm not just talking journalists' talking points here. I'm saying, like, you know, today's shoulder programming, and, and Lord knows after that pandemic there's going to be less of it, but we see stuff that's too formulaic and it doesn't adjust philosophically to the type of fight that it's trying to sell. And this was a good example. Um, and to Showtime's credit too, they did this really well for Mayweather McGregor. Like they adjusted the way that you market a fight with creative, you know, creative assets and, and, and how you, what type of audience you're speaking to and how you speak about something uh, to the type of fight that it is. That's just, that is a lost art in today's world. Um, anyways, the fight ended up doing 1.2 million buys. You know, one of the things I remember most about attending it was like seeing the look of joy, just pure unbridled joy on several of the Golden Boy um, higher level execs faces as it like, you know, basically, minus Canelo, he didn't get a KO, but minus that, this, like, played out perfectly for them. Like, it virtually doubled the early expectation set. Everybody made a ton of money. Triple G was there and did that, like, WWE entrance into the ring after the fight. So we all knew that one was next, and that softened the blow of how stupid this one was. Um, Canelo did his first fight where he was an A-side and did over a million buys. You know, quite frankly, it was almost double anything he had done as an A-side up to that in terms of pay-per-view buys. It was by far the most money he had ever made, certainly as an A-side. I think he did have a really nice payday when he fought Mayweather. Uh, but this one, uh, to my knowledge, did end up being significantly higher. I'm sure there were a lot of disappointed <laughs> casual fans who, especially in Mexican-American fans who like Chavez Jr., but like... This was a fight where Canelo got the rub, so to speak. Like, he truly became the fighter that was the clear leader among the Mexican-American fan base. Um, and not where it was like, oh, maybe he can reach that top A level. Because at that point, you know, Mayweather and Pacquiao were the only guys who were doing million by fights, basically. Like, no one else was hitting a million. Canelo now hit a million. And he hit over a million. Um, I probably do, if I'm being honest, I feel a little bit of guilt that we may have oversold the fight that ended up being like a really shitty fight in the ring. Um, but every other part of it I felt really good about. And honestly, when you're working with small promoters who have thin margins um, and, you know, I'd much rather oversell a fight and feel a little bit bad that you oversold a fight than undersell a fight, underperform in terms of expectations, and, you know, a small company uh, either loses money and may have to get rid of people or something like that. I mean, I, you know, you work with those people every day. You want them to, you know, have their jobs and thrive at them. So I, I think, like, you know, I guilt may even be the wrong word. I don't, I, I don't really feel that bad about it at all, to be honest. So it's, you know, the whole thing I felt pretty good about. And, and the one caveat is that by this point, Canelo had improved enough in the ring um, that we had stopped using terms. Like up until this point, we were using terms like matinee idol to describe Canelo. And this is right before that Triple G fight came. And going into that, I mean, 
I don't think people should get this, but like Canelo was the clear underdog going in. And he had improved to the point where he was still an underdog, but it wasn't an obvious rollover win for Triple G. Like a year or 18 months prior to this, and I mean Triple G would have been a massive favorite, like a 10 to 1 favorite. But now Triple G is a favorite, but you could sell him as the boogeyman of the division. Canelo could be sold as a star, and you could, you know, look, I, I worked on the Canelo Triple G first fight. Like, that, you could actually now say that that was going to be a competitive fight. You know, and coming off the Chavez Jr. fight, there'd be no doubt as to who the biggest star in the sport was. And remember, this. Mayweather did come back um, to fight Connor, but that wasn't set yet in May, and Mayweather hadn't fought in two years. So this is this was sort of um, Canelo's mantle to take, and and you know he had to beat Triple G to take it. You know he didn't do that right away, but he eventually did it in, in the second fight. Um, but that was sort of the birth. The birth of Canelo as the top star attraction in the world after this moment where Mayweather obviously fought McGregor. But look, that's, you know, I think when you think about it in terms of that, like, yeah, this fight, in terms of Canelo's legacy as a fighter, this is not going to be an important fight on his resume really at all. But in terms of him as a star maker, like, this was a really important fight for that. Had this underperformed... Uh, we'd be in a pretty different place than than where we than where we are right now in terms of where Canelo is as a star. I know people, you know, it's crazy to say that, but it's true. So that, uh, so, you know, so so that that is, I do think it's way more significant in terms of Canelo's star building resume than than people think. All right, let's move on to the preview section. Tomorrow, Thursday, July 16th, Miguel Mariaga fighting Mark John Yap at Featherweight. I think Felix Verdejo fighting Will Madeira. Mariaga's like a 25 to 1 favorite, something like that. I think Verdejo's going to be a big favorite too. And, you know, I've already, I mean, this card has already been hit hard by COVID. Let's, let's, let's hope there's no more uh, weird stuff happening for this one. On Tuesday, July 21st from Las Vegas, still on ESPN, we have a pretty fun matchup. Oscar Valdez fighting Jason Velez at junior lightweight. Uh, Edgar Berlenga, Berlenga fighting Eric Moon at middleweight. Isaac Dogbe fighting Chris Avalos at featherweight. Valdez is like a 14 to 1 favorite, but Velez is a good TV fighter. He's a good action fighter. Uh, Valdez is obviously a great TV fighter, a great action fighter. So I. Expect this one to be a really fun one to watch. I expect this one to be good TV, and I expect it to be closer. I think that fourteen to one is juiced up to the point. Like they, the comeback on Villas is like in the plus seven hundred range, and I think that's actually much closer to where the actual odds for this fight are. Um, Valdez is a very good. He's a great TV fighter. He's a great action fighter. He overall is a very good fighter. He is not a great fighter. He's definitely vulnerable. Um, and we've seen that in the ring. Berlinga is like 50 to 1 favorite, um, and he will likely get an early KO. But he's must see TV. I'm still 
on the Isaac Dogbay train, Isaac Dogbay, Chris Avalos, like give me some of that. I'm, I'm ready for it. So this will be a good fun night. Friday, July 24th from Indio, California and with zone making their return to boxing in the U.S. We have Virgil Ortiz fighting Samuel Vargas at welterweight. A couple of other decent undercards. There is that Hector Tanahara fight against Mercedes Jesta in this would this would be a card. This would be a much smaller card in a pre-COVID world. Post-COVID, I mean, look, this is, you know, <laughs> it's pretty good for what we're seeing. I mean, the, these last two cards. I know we should have seen more in July from Top Rank, but the, you know, the, these are good. These are good cards, and we haven't seen cards at this level in, in quite a while. So, uh, no odds yet on on this fight. I do expect Ortiz to be a big favorite, and I think we just have like really good news in general that DAZN is returning to broadcasting fights in the U.S. Um, after this, we're going to start seeing Showtime come back. I think Bellator is doing a July 24th card as well. So lots of interesting stuff here. Um, and then after that, like I said, I think that's what I'll focus on as, as all these other cards, uh, start to materialize, especially, you know, Fox will be making their comeback soon too. Um, that, that'll be the deep dive next week. So hang in there. We'll get through, uh, this week. There'll be some good, good fights next week. Um, and then we're going to have these nervous steps to see what happens when, there's actually like real decent fights that have meaning start to happen in a world where like 50% of the fights we're watching are, are being affected by COVID in one way or another. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. All right. Enjoy this. I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Enjoy the fights. Did you get what you was looking for?